All right. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Peace be with you. I am honored to be speaking from the ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Our guest today is Ryan Chan, coordinator for the Chinese-Canadian National Council for Social Justice, as well as a social advocate and uh, uh, soon-to-be graduate from the University of Toronto. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. It's our honor. It's our honor. So Ryan, uh, in that brief intro I gave about you, there was one key word there, which was a social advocate. So how does one become a social advocate? How did you get to that point in life where you decided, I need to start to change things? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to know that everyone has their own path. Um, my own actually, um, you know, I think a lot of people think that you're like born into this. And I don't think that's necessarily true. And I really want to encourage uh, everyone to, you know, consider this kind of, you know, this kind of work. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, the kind of elephant in the room there is that racism is very much internalized. It's just kind of part of the culture. Nobody really questions white supremacy. And there's kind of like a hierarchy of races. And it's just, something that, you know, people might say like publicly, oh yeah, it's a problem, but then really just like let it continue. Um, so, you know, I grew up in that kind of society where, you know, to some extent it was just kind of like, you kind of accepted that like those, you know, white people were like better, um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, Asian people were the majority in Hong Kong. Um, so, you know, at the back of my mind, I always thought that that was kind of problematic, but you know, nobody was going to do anything about it. Nobody felt the need to do anything about it. And so it was interesting that when I came to Canada, you know, I still had some of these like notions that, you know, maybe I shouldn't be too Asian. I was like concerned about how, you know, people would perceive me if I was like, you know, hanging out with uh, like Asian people, making Asian friends, um, being too in touch with my own culture. Um, that kind of changed for me like a couple of years later um, you know, when I was seeing that, uh, you know, a lot of people with Asian heritage are actually quite proud of it. You know, they were proud to be, um, I'm in law school now. So I'm, uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of lawyers who, you know, prominent lawyers who were like proud of their heritage, right. That they were, you know, proudly Asian. And so, you know, that kind of like got me started. Um, and so, you know, like I kind of went on that journey to try to you know, reclaim that part of my heritage to be, you know, show off who I was. Um, and so I started, you know, looking for, you know, these kinds of uh, social advocacy work. Um, unfortunately, it was actually very difficult to find it because, um, you know, unfortunately, pre-COVID, um, you know, and, and the major uptake in, uh, in anti-Asian racism, there wasn't a lot of anti or, or very recognized anti-Asian work as our anti-Asian racism work, um, because it was kind of not accepted that anti-Asian racism was real. Um, so basically, I kind of just leapt at every opportunity that I could get. And, you know, eventually I stumbled upon the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers uh, and now the Chinese Canadian National Council for Social, Social Justice. Um, and, you know, like I got very involved. I wanted to do as much as I could for my community. and you know, I, I guess to some extent I was just kind of uh, in position when, you know, when all of this madness kind of started with COVID and, you know, I finally uh, got the opportunity, you know, once there was a little public recognition of the issues, uh, we got the opportunity to really do some good work in our community. 
That's awesome. And being in the right place at the right time with the right attitude makes all the difference. Uh, one thing you said about your experience in transitioning from Hong Kong and the mindset there uh, to Canada, where you perhaps were, uh, you know, presented with maybe it wasn't that previous mindset wasn't exactly true, or there was maybe something that needed to be looked at. Um, I've had a similar experience echoed in, in my own upbringing. So I grew up in the Middle East. Um, uh, my parents were expats there. And uh, they had that social hierarchy as well. Um, so people from the you know, UK, from Australia, from America, from Canada were at the top, then the local uh, people, then the other you know, related Arabs, then you know, foreigners from you know, uh, different parts of the world. And then it keeps going down and down and down. And each strata of society was treated very differently. And I, I will say that's probably one of the first instances in my life where I saw blatant racism. Uh, and discrimination in the treatment of people, uh, not just an idea. So uh, as you came to Canada and you were confronted with, um, you know, maybe a different way of thinking, maybe things that aren't perfect, but still some good stuff here. Did you experience any kind of awakening moment when you were like, actually, we do face racism. I face racism. Have you experienced anything like that? Yeah, so I, I certainly face racism and I was like aware of racism I think throughout my life I think the only real difference was that I just thought it was okay or it was just kind of like one of those things in the background I know it's bad but we don't really talk about it or like what's the point of trying to change it it's just the way things are um so you know that's kind of how I thought about it it was like one of those big problems that maybe it's someone else's job to fix or maybe it's just unfixable which you know I now think is absolutely ridiculous but um for me, it really was uh, seeing other leaders in the field. Um, you know, I always thought that this kind of like social advocacy work was just this kind of, you know, something way off in the distance, nothing to do with me, nothing I can really contribute to. Um, but when I was seeing that, like, you know, everyone was kind of playing, you know, even like a little role just, you know, on social media, like advocating a little bit for it, you know, uh, talking about it. and it really changed when I saw like really like leaders of, you know, the legal industry, um, you know, people that I like look up to, like their ability to be comfortable with their race and to say like, you know, what's going on is not okay. We need to change. Um, and we need, you know, you, the next generation to do something about it. I feel like that was really like a turning point for me that it was kind of shocking that these people could be successful and still um, say that, you know, racism is a problem and they're actively trying to change and they're actively showing that they're Asian. Um, I always thought it was something that I had to hide and something that, you know, maybe I do like in the shadows, but um, to see that people were like actively out there putting themselves, you know, forward, I, I think that really made a difference for me. Well, I will say that um, that is reflected in a lot of the conversations we have with uh, community leaders. Um, we had a recent interview with MLA uh, Jenny Sims and she was talking about how respect for our heritage, how learning about our heritage, our culture, our background, um, whether uh, whether you're Asian, Black, White, Muslim, Sikh, whether you're from anywhere in the world, how important it is, because those are the pieces of the Canadian cultural mosaic, right? And those pieces, if you don't appreciate them, if you don't understand them, and you don't bring them together, there's no mosaic. So mm -hmm. having that experience, as you said, to see role models, to see um, actual people living that life where they are incredibly successful 
but also connected with their background, their heritage, and proud of it. Uh, proud of it not to the detriment of others, but proud of it to the benefit of their own communities and of everyone. Uh, I will say that having those experiences in all communities is, is vital. Um, and part of the work that you're doing now uh, with the um, Chinese Canadian National Council for social justice is to help provide youth with those leadership um, uh, positions, with those leadership model role models. So maybe why don't you talk to us a little bit about the educational aspect of what you're doing uh, or what the organization is doing? Right. So we're we're running a couple uh, educational um, campaigns. So one of them is uh, tackling racism uh, in grade four and above. So you know, getting in there like pretty much as early as we think is like appropriate. Uh, where children can start to understand conceptions of race and racism. Um, and so the idea is that children face like a lot of racism. Um, but the problem is they kind of pass it off as like jokes or their friends like messing around um, because the reality is like so much more painful, right? So children, they kind of internalize this kind of racism by thinking like, oh, it's just for fun. It's just, you know, they don't mean it. There's just jokes. Um, but that's very, very problematic because that kind of mentality stays with you as you grow up. Um, so one of the things that we're working on is we're developing uh, educational tools um, that kind of allow parents and teachers to like open up the conversations uh, about race and racism to say like, you know, this kind of thing is not okay. You have to be aware of, you know, who you are, um, what people can and should not say to you. Um, and so we're working with, uh, you know, some very generous sponsors like Aldo, uh, the Ministry of Education, and we're trying to bring those tools, um, you know, to the wider population, to schools, uh, to the public and, um, you know, getting that in right at the outset. And uh, another thing is, you know, training the, um, you know, people like me, I suppose, uh, the next generation of um, social advocates. Um, so that is something I mentioned with that we're partnering with Aldo uh, to do, where we're basically training law students, you know, people like myself, um, to take on the fight, basically. Um, I think, you know, one of the issues is that uh, racism is systemic. And, you know, everybody hears that word, but like, what does it really mean? Like, you know, is it like, you know, is it built in or like, is there like a, you know, racism bureau? Like, it's not like that. It's the problem is that all of the structures that we have, police, laws, like housing, all of these things, they were built on racist attitudes. And so, you know, I mentioned law is one of the big ones. And, you know, to be able to empower uh, a new generation of advocates, we have the ability to change those things. We have the ability to, you know, lobby the government to make those changes to educate people on like what needs to be changed. And so uh, we've identified that as like an important thing that we need to go after. And uh, that's why we're focusing on education next. And for dealing with these major issues, um, it, it's not just something that the, uh, the Chinese Canadian National Council has just started doing. So it, it's been around for a while to help to address uh, racism, particularly against the Asian community and the Chinese community, which is um, you know, a fundamental part of the Canadian mosaic. So maybe for our viewers, why don't you explain a bit of the background of the organization? Maybe talk to us a little bit about the values, the vision, the mission, um, and then we can look into how the programs are being run to actually change things. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, 
CCNC uh, started 40 years ago, uh, you know, way before my time, <laughs> um, in response to uh, the anti-W5, uh, in response to the W5 uh, broadcast. So it was called the anti-W5 campaign. Uh, and it was in response to a documentary aired by CTV where they were trying to explain that um, Canadian students were losing university uh, positions to Chinese foreign nationals. And so they had a whole documentary about how they went around campus and, oh, everyone's Chinese was what they were trying to portray. When in reality, you know, all the people that they showed were perhaps ethnically Chinese, but the majority of them were permanent residents um, and uh, citizens. So, you know, this kind of like racist overtone was kind of inherent, you know, all the way 40 years ago, like this idea of like these, all these foreigners, like taking up resources, um, you know, taking opportunities away from Canadian citizens. Um, and so, you know, our organization was founded there to combat that. Um, you know, in, in our 40 year history, perhaps one of the more, you know, famous moments is when uh, our organization managed to get uh, Stephen Harper to apologize for the Chinese head tax and to get reparations for that. So, um, you know, we have done a lot of work uh, and, you know, more recently, uh, what you would may have heard is our response to the COVID pandemic. But what you may not know is, you know, way back in, uh, 2003 for SARS, we were saying that racist attitudes would happen. Uh, you know, people would blame Chinese people on SARS uh, and that's what happened. And then so when COVID's around the corner, we're saying, you know, we're looking at the same kind of thing. We're talking about something that has already happened where Chinese people are blamed for a pandemic uh, and nobody was listening. So, you know, which is crazy because it's exactly the same thing, right? So like to hear that, like we know we'll, COVID is is probably what really poured fuel on this fire. Uh, in, in Vancouver, uh, where I'm speaking from, there was a 700, 714% increase in hate crime against Asian people. So it's not just insults or online rhetoric, or it's actual crimes with a hate component that were reported. Um, 714% in one city. And uh, UBC, the University of British Columbia, um, you know, which is in many, many cases, a bastion of peace and, you know, thinking and, you know, liberal mindset, they, women were attacked, Asian women were attacked there just because of their race. Um, and we see this across the country, uh, that a lot of what was under, you know, under the skin, if you want to call it that, um, of this feeling of hatred. Uh, towards people of Chinese or of Asian descent, just coming to the forefront because of um, because of COVID, uh, you know, it, it is shocking to see for many people to understand that this is real. This is really happening. Um, our cousins in the South and United States are experiencing widespread anti-Asian hate and attacks. And what what I would like to maybe see from from your perspective, uh, you know, firstly as a person, as an Asian person, like how does that make you feel when, you, like, like to see like just innocent grandfathers being pushed into like traffic for for no reason, like it's horrific. Yeah, like you said, absolutely horrific. And you know, I, I've mentioned this before because it's it like racism is like complicated. People think it's like oh, it's a tax, and you know, if you're not attacked, you're fine. Um, but it, it's so much more complicated than that. Yes, there is the immediate fear, right? You know, you 
you worry if like you're going to be the next person to be like you know yelled at on the street to be spat on you know i myself have been told to go back to china on several occasions you know just going to get groceries right um so there's always that immediate fear of like uh you know some kind of physical assault or like a backlash do i say something do i not say something um but you have to understand that especially you know in the current climate where these attacks are so frequent um, you know, our, our own reporting tools indicate that something like 1100 cases, um, but, you know, grossly, grossly underreported number. That's just like people who happen to find our website and, you know, covidracism.ca and submit a report there. But, you know, when these attacks are sustained, it starts to create like a fear within the community, right? You start getting texts from your friends and family that are like, maybe don't go out today, be really, really careful when you're going to the grocery store, which is crazy to me that we can be in Canada in, you know, 2021. And I have to be like, you know, looking around the corner and like being aware of my surroundings. I think that's pretty insane. Um, so there's that always that immediate fear, but, you know, going even deeper than that, right? The idea that, you know, on a whim, like just every, like people, it feels like society just turns on you, right? You know, Canada's first response uh, to COVID was racism, right? It was this idea that, you know, it was Chinese people, like, you know, it's the, that's not a racist thing to say. It was just, it happened to start in Wuhan and they brought it here, right? Um, but it's the, it's this idea that like, you know, on a whim, people will turn against you. People will blame you for all these problems. And, you know, it makes you think like, am I just a perpetual foreigner, right? Am I always going to be seen as different? Am I always just like, you know, not Canadian or something, you know? And so, yeah, that, that really has a huge impact on your self-esteem, right? And, and you know, what you're talking about, I've, I've heard it from many uh, communities in, in the Muslim community, for example, um, women who wear the hijab, right? So they, they are visible, right? They're visibly different. Um, in Edmonton recently, um, uh, five women who were black and Muslim were assaulted, attacked, um, you know, on the streets in broad daylight. Um, and it, it's, it's this kind of feeling that I'm always going to be a target, right? That because I'm different, because I'm visibly different, just because of that, that I have to pay more attention to my surroundings. I have to be more cautious. And, and that mindset, that kind of it creates an environment of fear and creates an environment where you're not able to fully live your rights as a Canadian, as a citizen, as a human being. And, you know, the anti-racist organizations uh, such as uh, such as yours, such as Islam Unraveled, which we have a bit shared DNA because Islam Unraveled also started uh, to deal with media uh, misconceptions, right? The, the, what is the, the misconceptions of Muslims going on and who's perpetrating that? So it, it's very interesting because racism, it targets everyone. Right. It's not a it's not just towards, um, you know, one people and then we say, oh, it's that person's problem. It's an it's a communal problem. Like we cannot allow it towards anybody, whether it's our black colleagues, our, our Asian friends, our, you know, uh, First Nations and indigenous people. They face a, a lot of a lot of racism. I have one comment I had was a First Nations person was told to go back to China because of this. And, it, you know, the, the racist mindset, um, my, my colleague Tark said it's a mental illness. It's a mental illness when 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 someone becomes that racist for no, no reason. Um, but the work being done to help address these, to help support people, um, you know, I going through the the programs that you're offering. One interesting one that I came across was 
um, face race. So hashtag face race. Uh, maybe would you like to tell our audience a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So um, face race campaign is kind of uh, it's like a digital artifact. It's it's kind of a collection of stories, uh, media incidents, experiences of people uh, in the pandemic, right? Like our as our community, right? Um, and so the idea is that it's supposed to be a, both a reminder and a call to action for members of our community and to allies that, you know, this is how quickly things go wrong, how quickly, you know, people will turn on you and how pressing the issue of racism is, you know, it's always kind of bubbling under the surface. And, you know, I mentioned briefly that this is not a new experience, right? We literally had SARS as, as, as kind of an example of like how this kind of thing happens. It, it's almost identical, right? Uh, and how quickly people forget, right? And how quickly people, you know, in, in that time frame, uh, decide that like racism is not real. So the idea of um, face race is that, you know, it, it, it tells these stories, it keeps a collection of them. It, it's a reminder to our community um, of the experiences that we had of, uh, of, you know, of racism during the pandemic. And so, you know, hopefully this inspires members of our community to, you know, you know, embody principles of anti-racism to try to, you know, talk about, you know, talk about race, talk about their own lived experiences and, you know, serve as a reminder that, you know, going forward, we can't just like, you know, when the, even when the pandemic is over, we don't just, you know, go back and, you know, when anti-Asian racism is no longer front page news, we don't go back and say like, oh yeah, you know, that was then and now we're here. So everything's okay. No, we need a reminder to everyone. And, you know, we do hope that, you know, people use that hashtag, right? Like face race, like acknowledge that racism is a thing, acknowledge your own race, right? And acknowledge like allies and other communities and, you know, because we're in this all together. And, and that, um, because now what we're talking about hashtags, right? So now this transitions into a major uh, topic, which is social media, mm -hmm. social media and the online world. Now, both what that is doing positively, but also what that is doing to fuel racism, both in Canada, in the United States and around the world. Um, so maybe let's, let's start uh, by talking about um, how has anti-Asian hatred and racist comments increased during COVID? What have you seen as the trends, the common trends online? Right, so um, we actually have some really good research on this uh, topic, um, you know, as a starting point at the very least. So uh, with collaboration from one of our partners, Professor Ahmed at the University of Toronto, um, he was actually able to track um, racist tweets on Twitter um, over like a month period. And we saw thousands and thousands of tweets um, directed towards Chinese people and, you know, anti anti-Asian, anti-Chinese specifically racism. Uh, and there was huge spikes every time Donald Trump would tweet. So every time, you know, it was like uh, Kung flu and, you know, Wuhan, like China virus, that kind of thing. Um, and so social media has, you know, th there's this misconception, I think, that social media amplifies racist beliefs because it's a giant megaphone, which is partly true. Um, but it's not as simple as that, right? Social media uh, 
makes use of algorithmic learning because it wants you to stay on its platform for as long as possible. The longer you stay, the more ads they play you, the more money they make. And how, and so essentially like, for example, you know, your Facebook timeline, right? You know, everybody may realize this, uh, you know, that your, your posts, they're not chronological, but like, what is the actual order? The actual order is what Facebook thinks is most likely to engage you. Um, and it doesn't have to be a positive engagement. It may trigger you, right? It may, um, it may be a cause that you support, but it may be a cause that makes you angry. And so hateful material, racist posts, that kind of thing, those are provocative. You know, it makes, um, you know, the small subset of people or the people who are, you know, on the borderline, uh, they may be interested in a similar perspective. Um, but for people on the other side, they may think this is like hugely offensive and they want to comment to have it removed. Um, but, you know, that kind of content drives up interactions. And so Facebook and, you know, these other social media companies, they actually like that kind of content um, because it makes them more money. And so the algorithms intentionally or not uh, are pushing that kind of content. And so you find that content to be more pervasive uh, and more shown on uh, social media on social media because it's it's a business uh, right so it increases right. as you were saying is increasing ads and um you know with with the you know removal of donald trump from twitter uh have, have you seen maybe any evidence increase uh, to illustrate that maybe it's reduced a little bit to the uh, amount of anti-asian the daily hatred being produced so is there a way to perhaps correlate um you know these large public figures pushing this narrative of of uh, disunity so unfortunately, we don't have uh, the budget currently to run more updated uh, research, but we're hoping that that comes in at some point soon. Um, but all I can say is there is a clear correlation that at least in the past, when every time Donald Trump tweets, there would be a huge uptick in uh, anti-Chinese posts. So, um, you know, the research is already there and I'd love to provide more, but, you know, there isn't a ton, you know, financially, it's, it is, it can be kind of difficult to uh, run research like this. Of course. And um, min many of our viewers might not be aware, but actually a lot of the producers of online hate per capita, uh, Canada is actually uh, more than the United States. So in, in your experience, have you seen any difference uh, between what is going on in the United States online and perhaps the Canadian flavor of that as it relates to anti-Asian rhetoric? Yeah. So the big example that I have and, you know, my organization, you know, felt this firsthand was uh, the Brian Adams tweet. So to, you know, the viewers who may not have heard about this, um, I have the actual quote. Um, basically, Brian Adams uh, tweeted out, um, let me just get that. Brian Adams, the singer? Yes, the singer. Um, so he tweeted out, uh, thanks to some effing bat eating wet market animal selling virus making greedy bastards, the world's on hold. So, um, you know, to, you know, to us at least, you know, you, you could debate this, but to us at least that was a blatantly racist um, tweet. It references all, of, you know, all the fake news, all the kind of, you know, bats who, I'm sorry. Stereotypes. And, yeah, stereotypes, yeah. And, and it's like bat soup and, you know, Chinese bioweapons, you know, the whole, the whole shebang, right? Um, so to us, that was like blatantly racist.
Yes. And at the very least, it was on the borderline such that it inspired a lot of racist responses. You know, people like the, the problem is when he was called out on it, Brian Adams said like, oh, it was about promoting veganism. You know, what virus making has to do with veganism is, you know, up to debate, but let, let, let's entertain the possibility that it was about veganism for a moment. The problem is that that tweet inspired a ton of online hate, the kind of comments like, you know, why are you, um, you know, harping on Brian Adams, you guys get triggered over nothing. Um, you know, Chinese people did make, uh, make um, uh, COVID through, through bat soup, they did bring it, they did, you know, there's so much evidence of, uh, I don't know, like Chinese bioweapon labs or whatever nonsense they saw on you know their social media that day. The, the response that we got there was the flood of online hate was like crazy, you know, like we just got so many hateful messages. It was very overwhelming, particularly for you know our team who received a lot of like personally, you know, personal hate. I'm not gonna go too much into that, but you know, the kind of effect that that has is just like shocking, right? So, you know, and, and that's just against like one organization who happened to speak out. And so like, it just goes to show like, you know, how pervasive these attitudes are. And particularly, you know, I call these like fringe cases, how fringe cases of racism are so dangerous because they're so controversial and that kind of thing really like hits it off on social media. Yeah, it's like the spark, right? The spark that sets it all, all aflame. And um, in this instance, um, it was a, an individual actor uh, who sent out one tweet, which sent out a cascade of hatred being directed towards uh, a minority group, right? Who they themselves uh, had nothing to do with this. Um, so this is part of the nature of, of racism. It's not logical. Um, but in addition mm -hmm. to actor, individual actors like, say, um, uh, Donald Trump or um, Brian Adams, uh, who are sending tweets themselves, we also have hate groups. So organizations, groups, specifically uh, bringing people together to promote an agenda. Um, and, and maybe yeah. why don't we talk a little bit about that? How, how have you seen, especially um, in Canada, in Canada, the kind of coming together of groups and organizations to attack communities, Asian communities in particular? So Unfortunately, the difficulty with this is a lot of it is done through private messaging uh, platforms, right? And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll quickly speak to like bringing groups together. The, another problem with social media is that um, it is very polarizing. So it also brings like groups alike. Uh, so they, what happens is they, um, they show you content and friends or potential friends and people who are posting similar content to you. So what this does is it creates this kind of echo chamber where um, people in this, you know, small minority of like radical views, they may start to like sound off each other and they get connected through social media because it's a connecting platform. It shows you similar people. And so what happens is it's like all of a sudden this small minority gets exposed to all these other people um, you know, with those similar views. And they're like, oh, I knew I wasn't the only one. I knew that everybody was thinking this. And it suddenly it looks like everyone is thinking this because their whole timeline is filled with people like that. Um, so, you know, for us, I, I'll be honest, I can't actually tell you what these individual groups are. Like, I, I don't have an identifiable group that I could just tell you because a lot of what happens here is it happens behind closed doors. It happens on like WhatsApp 
group messages. And, you know, I, I spoke to a representative of WhatsApp and, you know, we were talking about what can be done to try to, you know, limit the kind of fake news and these echo chambers on social media. And the problem is like, for example, WhatsApp is like heavily encrypted. Uh, WhatsApp themselves cannot actually look into these groups and like see what's happening. And, you know, we've tried to do research on like these groups, how they're being recruited, uh, what's going on in these messaging uh, platforms. Um, and, and due to the sheer scale of online hate, it's just, it can't be done by a computer program. It can't be done by an artificial intelligence. It's, it can only be done by having actual people you know, maybe make an account and join one of these WhatsApp groups, but it's like one invisible group among who knows how many. And so the problem is it, it's so hidden and it's so like, it just can't be uncovered. Like why, like how they're able to collectively come and flood our inboxes, um, whatever kind of coordinated movement. And I assume it's coordinated because of the sheer number. I, I can't tell you what exactly that group is, unfortunately. All I know is that it seems to the message seems to get around and there seems to be some kind of driving force but i actually suspect that it's social media platforms unintentionally um, pushing just these kind of radicalized views people with those kind of radicalized views together and they're just forming whatever facebook or whatsapp groups that they have formed and they're just you know spreading this kind of information amongst themselves and bounce like ping-ponging it back against each other until they feel like they're at a breaking point and they have to say something and, uh, you know, when, when we're looking at the, let's call it the public <laughs> racism and then the private racism and hate, um, the public, there's millions, millions and millions of people who are uh, being exposed to these kind of ideas, these memes, um, the, these ways of thinking. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Adam Rutter, who is, uh, um, uh, he's with the BC Community Alliance, uh, he is, uh, you know, a Black um, professor and he's focused on dismantling systemic racism. Uh, he was saying in one of his anti-racism classes, he had uh, uh, one of his students and an entire course on anti-racism, dismantling the colonized mindset, uh, addressing issues of systemic bias, hatred, racism in society, uh, an entire course. And then the student sees one meme on Instagram that shifts his opinion of an entire community of people. Uh, th that's the power of the online um, reality, in fact, you're not just not a world, it's a whole reality. So when we're looking at um, trying to reduce online hate uh, to help prevent real world violence, to help take people out of that experience, um, and even if there's still the smaller groups, but they won't be public, they won't have millions of people to be reached. Um, it, uh, with your background in law, with, you know, um, your focus on during the COVID-19 pandemic on how the online hate has been fueling so much of this flame. Um, let's maybe talk about a little bit about what the government can do in terms of legislation, because at the end of the day, that is the main piece here that has been missing for so long. Um, so please, uh, Ryan. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned memes because really like the, there is so much power in memes and people don't always realize that you know the the bat soup image you know with uh the the lady who was you know like biting into a bat and that, that sparked a huge amount of online hate right they were like this is proof that bat soup was the cause she's literally eating a bat but you know it, it was filmed in like palau or something like that it was you know from a documentary um and but 
at the time, you know, way back in January, February uh, 2020, people just didn't understand what kind of effect that this would have. And honestly, like, neither did we, right? Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of post, you know, that, that meme inspired an incredible amount of hate. And really, is, it was possibly like the starting point, or at least the catalyst for this entire anti-Asian, you know, racist, this anti-Asian rhetoric, right? So um, I'll speak quickly to like the ineffectiveness of current laws. Right now, we don't have real legislation that combats uh, hate speech and in particular online hate. Uh, once upon a time, we had section 13 uh, of the CHRA, um, the Canadian Human Rights Act. And that would actually allow people to make applications for the removal of hate and in particular online hate. Um, but, you know, Stephen Harper scrapped it because he was worried that it would infringe people's, you know, uh, freedom of speech, even though it had literally been used something like 20 times, um, like literally 20 times, something like that. Um, and so our current laws um, only combat and, and prosecute hate speech when it has it when it has the effect of willful promotion of hatred. And so that is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly high bar. You need to prove that the person spewing hate wanted to inspire hate, which is, it's so hard because that's a subjective concept, right? You, uh, uh, you could say that, you know, I was spreading hate to further a political cause. I was um, spreading hate because I wanted to protect my freedom of speech. I wanted to spread online hate like the bat soup image because it was funny. All of those things could potentially not get caught by, um, by the current legislation, by the criminal code. Um, so, you know, something needs to be done about that, right? Like our current laws are just so ineffective that they're, they're just entirely useless to combat a 21st century problem like online hate. So what needs to be done? Legislative reform. So Section 13 of the CHRA could come back in. That would definitely be a step um, so that at least we could prosecute or at least you know, remove the most egregious posts. Um, but I think that that's actually not good enough in the current day and age. You know, the power of memes is that it can be spread so far and wide in literally you know, an hour, two hours. Uh, you know, posts get shared, they get screenshotted, they get reposted. Um, they go up on people's stories and, you know, next thing you know, it's been reposted a million times within 24 hours. So um, we need legislative change to change that. Uh, you know, I, I, I was in a meeting with uh, the Minister of uh, Canadian Heritage, uh, Heritage Minister Gilbo, um, and my understanding is that, you know, they're currently working on draft legislation that they're going to roll out soon. Um, hopefully taking, uh, you know, some of our comments, uh, you mentioned the anti-hate network at, uh, our, and our, our organization, um, our comments and our recommendations. And so I, I really think that in order for this legislation to be effective, it needs to not work like a traditional tribunal, like the current criminal code. Because what happens is under the current, like, you know, under the criminal code, even if it worked, even under Section 13, what would happen is if I saw a racist post, I could report it and then there would be an investigation and then we would, you know, have a trial or a tribunal and then there would be, you know, 
you would have to call the other side and there would be opportunities to respond and we could debate about whether it was truly racist. And then after, you know, a long, 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 long process, maybe it gets removed. But we're talking like a timeline that is just, you know, like the current legal timeline, like trials could be like weeks or months. And that, that's just a trial. What about the preparation that could be like months or years? Um, so that's just useless when a po an online post can be spread a million times in an hour or, you know, within 24 hours. So uh, I really think that there needs to be like a reverse onus. I think that um, legislation, when it is created, it needs to remove, it needs to be done in a way that forces the removal first. And then if you want to contest it, you want to say that it was free speech, it wasn't racist, you know, it was like uh, misunderstood then you, you know, bring this application to have all, you know, go, go to trial, go to tribunal, whatever. And then we can then argue about whether or not it should be removed. And if you're right, we'll re-upload it, right? If you care so strongly that it was your freedom of speech, you can go fight about it. But for it to be effective, you need removal first. You can't wait months or, you know, however long to then remove one post because by then it would have been spread a million times. Um, so that's, my two cents on what needs to be done. And, and the importance of that, right, the importance of the government taking a stand to to really legislate uh, the online world, because it is a world. So today we were having a discussion and um, uh, one of our colleagues brought up the idea of digital citizenship. Uh, so that in effect, um, many youth today, they grew up online. They live their lives online. Their friends are online. They're in, perhaps even their jobs are online. Their in, entertainment is online. It's not a separate kind of temporary place. It is for many people, their real world. Um, and then the real world is just the place where their bodies exist. <laughs> so the concept of uh, digital citizenship or responsibility um, for citizens online um, maybe what are your thoughts on that? Like from to help address uh, and create a more um, a more welcoming community online, a more beneficial community online. Yeah, I, I certainly think that that is one of the creative and interesting ideas that we need to solve this 21st century problem. Um, so one of the big problems that we face is like this idea of like fake accounts, trolls, uh, like online anonymity. That. I feel is actually a huge source of online hate. It's the fact that you can say whatever, you know, you're having a bad day, so you can say something racist uh, anonymously and have no, you know, repercussions is the problem. It's the reason people feel so free to say these kinds of things. And then that's why it gets spread around and you see it more often. Uh, so I, I certainly think that this is like a very interesting and like one of the solutions that I would definitely love to entertain. And, you know, this idea that like, maybe like your account could get like suspended or removed if you're like spewing like fake news and online hate. Um, because, you know, like you said, it, it creates a sense of, you know, citizenship, like a, a, like a belonging and the responsibility in this online world that you're not just like a, a mass figure who can do whatever they want. Um, and, you know, this, this, the additional effect of that is that, you know, like I said, like these kind of, um, racist subgroups, they can become echo chambers. But what happens if you like start taking people out of these systems, right? You, they lose their contacts, they lose their um, connection to this like shady, you know, uh, underground world with like really offensive views and, you know, quite frankly, wrong views. Um, 
And so losing that connection, I think would be huge to be able to see what other people are actually thinking to like get out of your bubble and like realize that actually the world doesn't think that it's okay to be racist, that it is Chinese people bringing um, COVID into the, uh, in, into the Western world. Um, so I, I certainly think this is like a, a very promising solution and something that I hope that the social media companies would help help create. And part of like uh, our uh, role uh, here as the um, so Islam Unraveled is BC's uh, faith-based community convener. Our job is to bring people together, to form these alliances, to help uh, entertain ideas like this, to help share and, and, and speak more with um, stakeholders, with community members, uh, and with organizations to help find solutions. Um, so as, as we're uh, kind of nearing the end of our podcast, I want to give you the opportunity maybe to speak to our viewers and, and give them some advice uh, on maybe how they can be anti-racist and how they can help to have change within their own uh, families and within their own communities, because that's where it all starts. For sure. Um, so, you know, I, I just kind of want to go back to one of the themes that I was mentioning in the beginning. I think that everyone and anyone can be a social advocate. You know, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter like, you know, whether or not you've done this kind of work in the past. I think anyone can do it. Um, and I think it's important that everyone does it because at the end of the, of the day, racism, while it manifests in different ways, it all is rooted in the same thing. It's rooted in white supremacy. And it, it goes back all the way to like British colonialism, right? It was divide and conquer. Like it, it's quite simple, really. It was just, um, you know, the idea that like white people were saving the world and that it was all these races or they're, they're pitted against each other and they hate each other for whatever reason. Um, and it's the white saviors who can come in and like, you know, fix up the world, make these structures that like enable civilization and you know, bring us out of the dark ages. But that, that's just not true. Like these systems were created to divide us. And while it may seem that all of our experiences are different, they are all deeply interlinked, right? And it's a very important that we, you know, one thing is like raise awareness so that, you know, we understand that racism is real and it happens in all community, like racialized, like BIPOC communities. Um, and we need to understand like its roots and we need to understand what's happening now that you know, affects, um, you know, all BIPOC communities. Because um, again, while, while it manifests differently, um, we need to really understand that, like our systems need to be changed and we need people to support uh, all of these changes. Like it can't be, we can't always be arguing, for example, that, you know, freedom of speech, whether or not hate speech is freedom of speech, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the policing issue, you know, you know, sometimes there's the perception that it's like, oh, the policing issue is fine because like my community is not police. For example, the Asian community is not over-policed. Um, but you have to understand that, you know, the policing comes from this like racist conception and the police themselves uh, create a lot of, um, there's, there's just a huge amount of over-policing of certain communities. And while that may not be your community, it, it is a huge problem and it creates another divide between your community, for example, the Chinese community, and the black and indigenous communities. So um, I think it's important to understand these uh, concepts. I think it's important to support other communities, even though you may not think that their kind of racism applies to you. Um, it does, because it's all rooted back in white supremacy. And uh, the reason any of us get airtime, the reason any of us listen to each other is because um, 
we are not the visible minority. We are the majority, right? You know, and the only way that these issues get pushed, the only way that the government listens to us is if allies, other communities, when we band together and we show that we are in it together, we support each other's causes, we, we, we understand and acknowledge each other's difficulties and problems and institutional violence. And that's the only way forward, like, you know, together. And I, I just hope that everybody, you know, continues to support this kind of work and tries to educate themselves on it. Well, uh, Ryan, thank you so much for this today. Uh, we are honored to stand with you and the Asian community uh, in, in hopefully overcoming these and all other challenges. I know there was so much more we could have gone into today and maybe in future uh, podcasts, we can touch on those topics. Um, but I really wanted to thank you for joining us today. Ryan Chen, Chinese Canadian National Council for Social Justice. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me.